welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. Hello, I'm Sarah Leffley and I'm here with Pastor Rod Bailey. How are you today, Rod? I'm doing well on this warm spring day. It is a really wonderfully warm <laughs> spring day, isn't it? Nice in here, though, very air-conditioned and cool. Look, we're looked after by Mike always. We are. I want to ask you about um, the men's breakfast on Saturday. I mm. intended to send Ben as my male informant partner, mm. um, but our son had the audacity to have an asthma attack at 3 a.m. in the morning, so didn't turn out for us. No. Well, but please, fill us in. What's it like? Yeah, look, there were about 45 guys there. Um, Aidan Carlson spoke really helpfully, I think, about work. Um, I also interviewed Steve Shaw just about his uh, work experiences, Blue Scope, Southwest, all that, um, the kind of management roles he's had. But the, the challenges of being a Christian you know, in that environment, in any environment, I think a lot of the principles relate to all people, wherever you are. Yeah, and he he was really helpful too in just talking about some of the challenges in that and not finding your identity in your work. I think that was a big theme that came out from both him and Aidan, um, that we live in a culture that wants to identify people, which is often why the first question we ask somebody is, oh, what, what do you do? do? Yeah. You know, so it was good to address that and say that's not who you are if you're a Christian. Um, you know, you're in Christ. And what you do is secondary to that. And really, whatever you're doing, you're seeking to glorify Christ and you're serving the Lord as you work, not serving a boss or serving yourself. So, yeah, it was very, very good morning, I thought. Sounds like a really great turnout and a really wonderful reminder. Ben always thinks that's the worst question to start with. As a maths teacher, he thinks he loses a lot of friends mm. starting off with what do you do? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what else you start with, though. He needs a creative way of answering it I that reckon. doesn't say maths. Yeah, exactly. He usually just goes for, I'm a teacher. <laughs> but there's always follow-up. <laughs> yep. Unfortunate. All right, well, let's get stuck into Acts 15. And um, a lot of these questions are back talking about the law again, but I'm glad we're here because it's something I'm still grappling with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this passage, I'm wondering, are there any non-Jewish converts at the time that are actually going through Jewish practices, particularly circumcision, in order to try and appear or at least seem like a real believer of Christ? Yeah, look, I think it's a natural question given the context of this passage in Acts 15. You think, oh, this must be happening a lot or, you know, it's a big debate that they're entering into here. It's really hard to know um, or at least to quantify. The Bible only gives us sort of passing references here and there. We infer certain things. But like even the references um, are usually exceptions, you know, like Paul himself is having Timothy circumcised in Acts 16, the very next mm. chapter, which contradicts everything he's just been yeah. arguing in Acts 15. And and so it's sort of given, I think, because it's unlikely that that would happen, given the debate. And so Luke can't help but note these things to say, you know, not everything's clear or straightforward in terms of just the practice and the wisdom decisions that need to be made, given particular circumstances, which is Paul's argument in that case that it's seemingly uh, regard with regard to mission purposes. But... I mean, writers outside the Bible, like Philo and Josephus, actually comment on this as well. So it was obviously a huge thing, uh, particularly from the viewpoint of the Jews trying to hang on to, perhaps it's a mix of culture, and hanging on to the Old Testament law, and then wanting others to be, you know, adhering to these things. There's a whole history, obviously, to this point before the Christian church starts, of proselytes, of 
you know, non-Jews joining the people of Israel, and you could be a God-fearer, as we get that description even in the New Testament, where you're kind of uh, you're worshiping the God of Israel, but you're not fully engaged in the Jewish culture, and so um, that particularly, obviously, for males meant they hadn't been circumcised, and there were perhaps other things that they weren't doing according to the Jewish law, but they were seeking to worship the God of Israel. So, because you've got that whole background, and that's been happening for centuries, um, then when the Christian Church comes along, that's a very hard. Um, change for the Jews to come to grips with, that these things were not necessary for the Gentiles. And indeed, if you look at Peter's words in verses 9 to 11, circumcision is not a requirement for Jews anymore, mm. let alone for Gentiles. Um, but it's very unlikely that many Jews actually um, stop following the law in these things. Um, it's fascinating. If, we'll get to it later, but when you get to Acts chapter 21, um, Paul's gone back to Jerusalem for another visit, um, he's reporting on some things. It's going to be his final time before he's sent to Rome. And he he goes and meets with the elders. It seems almost secretly or on the quiet. And they're excited to receive him and they hear his latest report from the sort of second and third missionary journeys. And then um, they're saying, now, look, we've got these four guys that need to go through purification rites at the temple. And lots of the Jews in the city are hearing that you don't worry about the law and you're telling all these Gentiles to disobey it. Could you go and do this purification rite yeah. with these guys? And that'll make them not think that you don't care about the law or show that you're still obedient to the law. And you think, why does he need to show that he's still obedient to the law? And so this is, and this is James and the other leaders saying this to Paul. Now, again, they'll argue certain contexts or mission or, you know, this will help things go smoothly. But you can see how much of a hang-up it is yeah. that the Apostle Paul is being told to do certain things by the Jerusalem leaders so there won't be a riot in Jerusalem when they figure out that Paul's there. Yeah, especially because some of those guys are the guys that are supporting Paul in this passage and saying that you don't need circumcision. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's complex. A lot to um, let go of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we know from elsewhere in Scripture, like Ephesians 2, verse 11 onwards, um, you know, Paul writes and says they're one new people of God, mm. Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed. We're one people. We don't, you know, and so there's these strong statements to the contrary from Paul throughout his letters, um, which tell you that uh, these things are not needed anymore, which are fully in line with what the council in Jerusalem decides. And yet there are all these exceptions around it and things that are happening as we read the unfolding story in Acts. And what a huge work by the Holy Spirit in Paul that he's the one that seems to be the most confident of this unity mm-hmm. and the one that's able to let go of the the law mm-hmm. the most, considering he was, you know, Jew of all Jews. Yes. Wow. Pharisee of all Pharisees, Pharisee of all tribe Pharisee. of Benjamin. Yeah, you know? yes. incredible. Um You've alluded to it then about what the Jewish practices still were. Were they upholding most of the law, including circumcision, you know, sacrificing animals for forgiveness of sins? Because didn't they know that Jesus had called himself the fulfillment of that law? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> this is where it gets confusing, or, it, or at least the, the answer to what's happening practice-wise is yes and no. Um, and I think there's some confusion, too, in their understanding of it, potentially. So some seem to have been, as represented by this stricter Pharisee party that we hear about in Acts 15, uh, being very particular and still following all of the law. Um, they just saw um, that they needed to do that. Uh, that was their Jewish heritage. They've always been doing that. Um, but then there are others, because of Paul's teaching, um, that become more relaxed in their approach, it mm. seems, and can talk about it differently. 
But again, the data is pretty slim. Um, we're, we're getting passing comments and inferences, and, and some of our understanding of those different practices is really reflecting on Paul's own commentary in his letters as he writes to different groups. Um, you pick up some of the background. Uh, for example, even in Paul's own guidance, so uh, remember 1 Corinthians 9, become a Jew to win the Jews, become oh, like yeah. one not having the law to win those not having the law. So Paul seems to say mission imperative. So if you need to behave in a certain way so that these people give you a hearing, do it because it's about the gospel. Um, the law is neither here nor there. But that means that in some cases you might be obedient to it, which is probably James and the others' argument with him in yeah. Acts 21. But then in other contexts where... Oh, well, you know, you're hanging around with people that are Jews even that don't care so much to being really scrupulous when it comes to the law, well, then you can relax about it. Well, that's a kind of confusing <laughs> environment yeah, to live gray. in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's a lot of grey in that. And um, so I think, um, yeah, and we see that in Romans 14 and 15, you know, the, the weaker brother, stronger brother stuff. Um, that relates to special days and feasts as well. So it's clear that some Jews were hanging on to all of these things, Um and it is right that in the sense, um, you know, I think Luke is presenting Christianity as a natural extension of Judaism. You know, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and everything that it pointed forward to comes in Jesus. Absolutely. We'd say amen to that. But the result in the way it's written, and, and I guess for the first generation of believers, was, well, I trust in Jesus, but I'm a Jewish person who continues yeah. to do these things. And so it was a very hard thing to unravel, it seemed. I think maybe I'm struggling to pick up on it or understand it just because I'm not letting, having to let go of anything. It's not something I've ever had to yes. follow rigidly or it's not something that my family is doing. So there's no relinquishing for me. So yes. but I think about it, I'm like, wouldn't you just want to let go of all that stuff? It sounds hard. Yes, that's <laughs> Grace right. Grace sounds a lot easier to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I was really interested about these um, believers that belong to the Pharisees. Um, they seem to be very much on the wrong side of the circumcision argument, mm. but they are called believers, and that surprised me. Are they true, um, truly trusting in Jesus Christ? Yeah, I think on face value we have to understand verse 5 that refers to them that way as, yes, they're believers. Um, the term party there refers to a distinct subgroup, obviously, but it isn't a pejorative term usually in the New Testament, including in Acts. Uh, it doesn't equal cult or heretics. You yes. know, it's um, Luke's largely pre you know, presenting it, as I said, as a natural extension of um, Judaism. Um, and I guess this new community that is formed around Jesus and faith in him, um, we would say, looking at these people, okay, well, they, they are believers, but they're immature believers, or they're weaker brothers in the language of Romans 14 and 15, uh, who are still working out the implications of this salvation by faith, that you could be purified by faith, as the Apostle Peter says in his speech. Um, so the, the church was not monolithic. You know, in there, this is the thing, and it's not today. Like, and, and this is our struggle as we look at religious practice today in various religions. Mm. Like, I think Christians tend to look at the Muslim world and think they all must behave and act and believe the same things, and all the practice is uniform. Nonsense. Like, it varies from city to city within a country, let alone from one Muslim country to another. Um, Hinduism, the same. Christianity, I mean, 
this is the problem for the outsider, right? Looking in at Christianity, yes. it's like, oh, you've got all these denominations and they seem to have different priorities and things they focus on. And, oh, is it all just confused? Who's right in all of this? So I think even in the first century, that's probably no comfort to us. That was how <laughs> things began. You know, there was no uniformity, um, no block. And, and so as we read these accounts, which are largely descriptive, as we keep mentioning, we're just getting this warts and all view from Luke, and it's messy, and we're trying to piece together bits as we think through it. Um, but that's how it is. That's that's what the New Testament presents us. And so it's it's a matter of sort of harmonizing these different uh, examples and understanding what was meant to be held and, and then sometimes what was practiced anyway. Hmm. I was really encouraged in the mess, though, when I was reading it to notice that there is a lot of um, attempt at order. You know, the fact that they do kind of convene a little council to to discuss the issue and they debate. Um, they've got elders and then they, they write a letter and they send people with the letter and then they stay for a while to disciple. I thought, mm. this is really, I, I think for an early church, I imagined a lot more chaos, mm-hmm. a lot more arguments, a lot more fighting. And there seems to be a real deliberate attempt at creating order um, for the sake of the gospel. And I, I was really surprised. I thought... They did this well and early. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very organized. Um, you know, and maybe that goes back to um, Jesus appointing apostles mm. and then the apostles, as we've seen even on the first missionary journey, uh, appointing elders in yeah. every town. Like they, they did create structures from the very beginning because they saw how crucial it was to have clear leadership. Yeah, it made me also appreciate more the fact that we have church leadership structures and um, it made me reflect on kind of all the church meetings that I've sometimes begrudgingly attended mm-hmm. and thought, no, I value that we have these things because obviously the order is good. Out of that order does come clearer understandings of grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's valuable. We, we struggle with all this because as Aussies, we're not really into authority, no not way. into hierarchy or, you know, strategies. <laughs> I'm definitely not into meetings. <laughs> yeah, and so we – but there's a place and a value to it or else we, we descend into all kinds of problems. For sure. I'm interested in this letter that they sent. I felt that I could have sent a faster, briefer version of the message and just saying, um, you know, reiterating that commandment of do not have any gods before me. Mm-hmm. Why is it that they chose to deliberately look at these specific um, issues of sexual immorality and the blood of animals and that mm. sort of thing? I think because um, we have a higher expectation of just applying a principle today, mm. perhaps. Like, I agree with you. That's, a, that's the principle that sits behind it. Why can't they just apply it and see yeah. what it works out into <laughs> everyday life? But the truth is we struggle with application today as well, right? And so um, the principle of, yeah, just not having any other gods, um, they needed obviously specifics, concrete examples, practical, don't do this. What this means is avoid X, Y, and Z. Um, and that was very helpful, obviously, and needed. And so there's specific actions that need to be dealt with. And I think the the key actually in the verse is the Greek word that sort of starts off uh, the discussion, apeko, which means avoid contact. So it's very specific about certain actions and contact that a person has with idols or with things associated with the uh, the cults or the pagan temples. And um, there's also the word um, used pollution, like don't be polluted by idols. Mm. Uh, again, very specific. Um, if you're going to be polluted by something, you have to be in contact with it. It's like the way we think about, 
you know, an uncontaminated environment in a hospital, say, versus something that's contaminated. Um, we we don't draw those lines as clearly thinking in sort of moral terms and actions with relating to religion. But the Jews were very clear about clean and unclean, right? That's a huge category in the Old Testament. And that applied very strongly to how they viewed Gentiles and their interactions with idol worship. And so um, that's a big part of it too, um, that they have to be really specific uh, things associated with idols, their rituals, they're not only wrong or sinful, we might say, principle, but it made them unclean uh, before God, if you're going to be really uh, specific, and unclean before Jews mm-hmm. who had a real problem looking at this um, because it was anathema to them. That, you know, there's one God only who worship him and, and all of this pagan worship that they've told, you know, be separate from these people for yeah. centuries. And now they're interacting with them and they're sitting next to them in their church. And is he still going down and doing that at the temple? You know, and so you can imagine the fears from the Jewish side of things. Um, And so so much around the temple worship um, is really important. And I think even um, this aspect of prostitution that related to um, the cultic dimension of temple worship, only three times in the book of Acts, apparently, is uh, the word porneia, which we translate sexual immorality, used. And all three of them are this. Uh, they're yeah, in right. Acts 15 twice, you know, when it's first mentioned, and then in the letter that goes to the churches, and then in chapter 21, which I mentioned before, where Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And actually, James does a recap after he's telling Paul, you should go and do these things. And then he says, as for the Gentiles, well, you know, we've sent the letter with the four things and he lists them again. Uh, They're the only points where this is raised. And so in particular, um, in the use, its usage in the book of Acts relates to idolatry. Um, It's a broader word than that. And the New Testament uses it much more broadly in the letters. But in the book of Acts, it's it's related to the, what's happening at the temples in particular. So it's very interesting how concrete it is, but I think that tells you something of the environment. They're just swimming mm. in this all the time, and they have to be really specific. Don't do these things. For sure. And you've kind of um, mentioned, I think, the sexual immorality. You've, you've summed that up real well. What about these other weird ideas, though, of the strangling of the animals and the blood? Is mm. that relevant to everybody, or is that also just very specific for this group in this time? Yeah, good question, and I sort of um, skirted over that on Sunday because there's just too much detail, lot, which um, yeah. yeah, to go into, and and some of it doesn't really um, prove that edifying, even after we've understood it, because mm. it's just so separate from what we understand today. Um, for example, so the strangled um, animals—it's literally strangled things in the Greek, um, ninktu, um and it's a pretty rare reference. Um, it appears. Um, in the New Testament only a few times, and it can relate to anywhere the words used in terms of strangling or choking. So when all the pigs rush down the hill and drown in the water, oh, yeah. the same word is used. Uh, they're strangled or choked, they drown. Um, but it's a description of what happens in pagan sacrifices or meals among Gentiles in terms of the butchering approach. So um, they would strangle the animals rather than do it the way the Jews would kosher, which would be... Um, getting into the details, cutting off the yeah, head of the right. animal, which would allow the draining of the blood from the animal. This way, there was no proper draining of the blood from the animal. And so then you were eating blood as well as yeah, meat okay. that wasn't considered to be done the right way by the Jews. Um, and that's what the blood matters is about. It's literally our word for blood. Um, we, you know, Hematology is a word that comes from the Greek word hamos. That's the word used here. Um, 
So it's a reference to Leviticus 17 in particular originally, um, that you must drain the blood from the animal. And it's because of the association of life and blood for mm-hmm. the Jew. You know, the blood represented the life of the animal. Um, and so it was like you're still eating it while it was alive or its yeah, life was sure. still in it. It needed to be drained. And um, and so that was a tricky thing for Jewish people and their sensibilities. Um, and it reflects their concern over the sacred nature of life. Um, and particularly offensive, I guess, um, was sometimes we understand that the Gentile priests would actually taste the blood as part of the the ceremony at the the idol, uh, the idol worship. And so that was not a thing that the yeah. Jews could cope with. That was something that was seen sort of publicly, regularly. So another thing that was unhelpful um, for the Jews. But really, all of that is getting into detail about stuff that sounds like, oh, okay, well, they're just dealing with Jewish sensibilities around food. This is just about food laws. But it can't be, as I mentioned on Sunday, just about that because there's an awful lot of other food laws which are just ignored, which would be just as important to the average Jew. So this is about the temple and the practices there. And I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 is probably the best summary of what's going on here because Paul there writes to that church and says, uh, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And so this is really the basis of the, uh, the request ultimately. It's all about being faithful to the one true God, hard no Is that letter talking about their response after they got their letter? Do they listen? Is that what we're taking from that? Well, I I don't know that they (laughs) get the letter um, because Thessalonica is in Greece and Mm -hmm. this um, circular letter was only taken through Turkey. Sure. But I imagine over time these things were passed on. It's encouraging anyway. Yeah. A big part of the culture, like to to say those things are like we've really turned away from Mm. idols and we've turned to God. We're not doing both. Yeah, great. I feel like I need to learn Greek. That's what I'm learning today. So much Greek, but it's good. It's really helpful. Um, How can we value the Old Testament uh, law, particularly the Ten Commandments, um, without it becoming, I think you used the term subtraction, which I really appreciated on Sunday, or a stumbling block to the message of grace? Yeah, I I think, you know, we looked at Deuteronomy not so long ago, and um, during that series, we commended the book by Jen Wilkin, um, and as our book of the term, that would be a great book for people Mm -hmm. to look at. Um, But um, as we've mentioned before, I think, because you keep running into law in the New Testament and thinking through this issue, you know, you can split the law into three parts, if you like, and the important part is the moral law, and that continues to be binding for believers. But then there's all the ceremonial and sacrificial laws around the temple, sacrifices and so on, which are fulfilled when Jesus comes as the once-for-all sacrifice. They're not continuing. Uh, they're abrogated, as the Westminster Confession would say. <laughs> um, so they're set aside. And then there's all the judicial laws that the Jews had, which were for the nation state of Israel. So I know you have something like, you know, the, the city that you can run to if you've accidentally killed somebody. You know, <laughs> And so if you can get to the city before the members of their family catch you and kill you, then you're safe and the, they have to protect you in the city. <laughs> what a legal system. I mean, that's that's a great law, isn't it? But we wouldn't use that today. So um, we don't expect people to be chasing us down the road with spears <laughs> and machetes or whatever they did. Um, so, you know, two of the three parts of the law are no longer ongoing. 
But the moral law is binding for us still. And the reason we know that is because all of the, um, let's take the Ten Commandments, for example, all of them are repeated in the New Testament. Mm. The only um, caveat on that is the Sabbath is repeated, but it's not made binding in the way it was understood in the Old Testament. We're still to have rest and we're to focus on the Lord, but it's not about um, not touching anything or going anywhere or walking more than a kilometre. They had all these rules, you know, yes. to protect there the Sabbath. There were ceremonial laws attached to the moral law. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, we've got to see that, um, yeah, we, we're able to set aside things like cities of refuge and the judicial law. We're able to sit, set aside um, all these temple and sacrificial requirements, um, but the moral law continues. So we should study it. We should learn it and obey it. Um, but it'll keep coming up in the New Testament. The thing to remember is that the Spirit convicts us of these things now. I don't have to have laws read at me all day and mm. wrote learned for these things to be placed in my heart. God does that through the work of the Spirit. And so I'll be convicted to you know, be careful about these things, whether it's the Godward elements of the first four commandments of the ten or the horizontal ones um, in terms of how I relate to my brothers and sisters, um, because I want to love God with all my heart and soul, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. That's why Jesus can say that's the summary of the law. Um, so that's important, but I, I need the Spirit's help, and I'm enabled, empowered to obey these things and also be convicted to obey mm. them by God's work in me, not because I study a list each morning. Yeah, it's really freeing, um, that perspective, that, in fact, to value the law we just faith is the answer in having faith we have the spirit and the spirit will convict us that's really freeing yeah yeah uh what does it mean in verse 42 when it refers to um people as prophets yeah well firstly it's verse 32 32 the, oh dear that's all right <laughs> the, the chapter ends in verse 40 so it got me when i was yeah, looking right. it up i was, I like, was typing oh. while listening to you and clearly yeah, not looking no. at my phone <laughs> fine. <laughs> I, I don't know what verse 42 says. No, but. probably not a lot, yeah. <laughs> and, um, Judas and Silas, um, I mean, the verse says, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. So Judas and Silas are the two reps sent up from the church in Jerusalem, of course, um, to con to take the letter with Paul and Barnabas, but also to convey verbally, hey, what's written down here mm. is true, and let's reinforce that. And so they're trying to strengthen the churches. So that's their role, firstly. Um, but in terms of being called prophets, um, so in the New Testament, um, yeah, we get this term a lot and we'll hear the term uh, apostles and prophets in that order. And the reason is because the apostles are seen as having authority and laying down things, which we hear quite clearly in the council at Jerusalem, that the apostles and elders make a decision and they pass that down. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're not looking to the Old Testament law. Their authority is in the apostles and teachers that are upholding what has been revealed by Christ to them uh, through the Spirit. So... Um, there's a change in authority and what you look to. Um, but the prophets had an important role because you don't have all the New Testament written down to begin with like we enjoy today. So they had very little, as we know. Um, we see the Apostle Peter referring to Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3 and says you need to obey those things. So it, obviously some things were um, known and um, there's a, a gradual compiling of what we know as the New Testament by about... 100 AD. Um, but in that early phase of the church, um, yeah, so you haven't got the New Testament read. All you've got is the Old Testament. Um, and so you have prophets that uh, we understand are speaking God's word to encourage and strengthen believers. Mm. Now, um, but their small p 
prophets, unlike the Old Testament. So Isaiah might say, the Lord thus says. And so you had to obey, and if you disobeyed, um, then it, you know, it could be worthy of execution. Or if the prophet speaking was not telling the truth or his prediction failed to come true, then he should be hmm. killed because he was representing God wrongly and he wasn't a true prophet. Um, so it's not that level of authority in the New Testament. Um, rather, it's a strengthening encouraging. And I think 1 Corinthians 14 probably does the best at uh, explaining that role within the life of our church. Um, verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 14 says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And it's interesting that that word encouragement is used here of what Silas and um, his mate are seeking to do for the church in Antioch. Um, the difference is that in 1 Corinthians 14, you can weigh up what the prophet says. So we understand that um, in the light of... Um, you know, the discussions there and elsewhere in the New Testament um, that uh, it didn't mean that you had to um, take it as God's word directly, but it was really more their reflection on what they understood Christ to have taught. In the same way, we might reflect on things in a Q&A time or like we're doing right now in a oh, podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not um, announcing new words of the Lord. We're just reflecting and seeking to understand and offering the wisdom that God has given us through his spirit. Um, and so that's why you can weigh up what is said. Um, so what we share today can be weighed up as people listen to it. Yes, uh, and not... I hope that they do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's important to see that difference. So, But they played an important role, um, yeah, along with the apostles, the prophets. And so we, we get um, that statement at the end of Ephesians 2, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Thank you. I've always known that there is a difference between that big P and that little P, but I've never been able to articulate it. So it's nice to have an answer. There's uh, an obvious definite right, right and wrong in the dispute about circumcision for Gentiles. Mm -hmm. What about the dispute between Paul and Barnabas? Is, that, is one of them right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, it's not clear at all, and um, Luke doesn't record one as being right mm. and the other wrong, um, and sometimes he's happy to do that. Well, certainly Paul is when he writes his letters. Yeah. You know, he, <laughs> he says, Peter was wrong, Galatians 2. I was clearly right. Um, so, yeah, and I don't think Luke has a problem of um, highlighting, as we've already said, some of the the foibles and problems that the early church had, like that's what makes the New Testament so authentic, mm. that they just include all these things and we're just left to look at them. Um, it's not surprising in this instance. I mean, Mark is, you know, Barnabas's cousin. You know, blood is thicker than water. Yes. Um, also, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. That's what his name means. So he's always going to go, no, give him another go. Let's, let's go with it. So it seems doubly likely that obviously Barnabas was going to take Mark and they do the short journey like he does. He's from Cyprus. He goes back to Cyprus. It's another homecoming. Takes Mark. It's a short journey. It's not far. Maybe that's um, an allowance there. Paul's doing the harder journey. So he'll go by land. He goes through Syria and up into what we call Turkey today, all these different Roman provinces of Cilicia. Um, and so I think that reflects wisdom. Obviously, they've come to some compromise. Yes. You know, we don't get them saying, I hate you and I'm never <laughs> going to work with you again. You go and do your thing and I'll never speak to you. It's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not happy with this decision. My wisdom says it's not a wise thing to take mark. And it's actually the word wisdom that's used. And the particular word used for wisdom is relating to um, being counted worthy. So in Paul's mind, um, it's not wise 
He doesn't count Mark Worthy, giving he had deserted them on the first journey. Yeah. And so this is not a, a theological dispute. They don't disagree over the gospel. It's just a wisdom issue about strategy and who you should take. So I think it's helpful that we learn this, that even good people can disagree and make different decisions and agree to go their separate ways. But we still see reconciliation, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago and in Acts 13 when this first happened and, and Mark deserted them, that Paul later when he's in jail says, oh, send Mark to me. He's a great help in my ministry. So obviously, you know, he doesn't hold any grudge against Mark and later interacts with him again and, and values his input. Yeah. I really liked when I was reading it um, in home group that even though they disagree and they kind of physically go separate ways, um, they're going with the same mission still. It's still the same gospel that they're carrying and they still both value the carrying of that gospel out. It's not like one person stays behind and they're having a tantrum. They both Mm. still do the work. I was really encouraged by that. Yep. The mission is doubled. Yes, definitely. And God uses it so well. I think often if I ever face conflict, I'm kind of tempted to sulk (laughs) and not to do. And this is really a good reminder for me that conflict doesn't have to be the end of good work i guess that's right yeah yeah i think that's a great place to leave we are mm. we are going longer than otherwise we would but yep. that's where the law takes us apparently that's where it took us <laughs> yeah it's been absolutely wonderful thank you so much for enlightening us on more of an understanding of the law teaching us some greek along the way um and we'll pray that this week i guess the next chapter might be a little bit clearer and easier for whoever's preaching next ken you can only oh, hope ken <laughs> Good luck to you, Ken. All the best. Thank you very much and listen again next week. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.